appropriating has become like painting out of the tube. You know, people just, anyone can do it. Unfortunately, what's happened is, again, art schools, I think, don't really teach the history of appropriation and, mm. and its global, cultural, historical implications, right. and then much less so the legal implications about it now. Right. Welcome to the October 25th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. The voice you just heard is that of Sergio Sarmiento. He's a contributor to Hyperallergic. More importantly, he's an artist who studied law as an art project. Now he finds himself as an authority on the growing field of art law. When we first started Hyperallergic nine years ago, Art law was slowly emerging into the mainstream, but boy, has it caught up. It's everywhere. So I invited Sergio into the studio so we can tackle a lot of the issues in the world of art and law today. Hi, Sergio. Hi, Rock. How are you? Good. So you've been one of the go-to people, in my opinion, when it comes to art and law and the intersection, because you're also an artist, you're a lawyer, you're a teacher, many things, as well as a writer. I mean, it's a big topic. So I'm going to start with a basic question. What's changed in the field in the last 10, 20 years? Uh, you know, that's a really great question. You know, I, I was going through some photos uh, earlier this month, and I found one of us two at a, a benefit in 2010. Uh, we looked younger. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But aside from that, you know, it made me think about this question, you know, how at that time there were only a couple of us blogging or writing about art law matters. And, you know, a couple of things to note on that. One is that the big print journals like the New York Times, the LA Times, mm -hmm. the Boston Globe were always the first ones to pick up stories. And then all of a sudden comes hyperallergic and, you know, Artnet and, and the art newspaper and all these other online journals. And that kind of flips. And, you know, and with us blogging and having more insider information, I think that helped to get people excited about these disputes. So, you know, I think that what the main thing that has changed is one is access to information and two has been just how much of a niche art law has become. You know, every online journal now has its own quote unquote art law writer. Right. right. And know. so uh, what got you into art law? You know, it was kind of a fluke. Uh, it was either do a PhD in comp lit, studying art and law. And, and then I thought, well, I'm already poor. Uh, why would I want to be even more poor and desperate? Uh, so I decided to really study law at, at its practical level, and that was law school. And, and I was originally very much more interested in First Amendment. And, and through law school, I then became interested in intellectual property. And little did I know that there was this thing called art law. But you started law school as an artist. Though. Yes. So I went so wait, there as an artist. How did art that happen? Yeah, that's that's the weird thing is, you know, I, I I took a year off from making art, you know, because I felt that all this critical theory, postmodern stuff was kind of a dead end. And um, so I took a year off and then I realized that my real interest was in thinking about power, mm -hmm. language and these dynamics, specifically within this uh, within the United States. And so I decided to go to law school as a performance project. And it was documented through photo, video, and text. And that was actually part of your project. Yes. So what, what did you call it's expensive. it? expensive. <laughs> did you weren't able to get a grant for it? It was called the Cornell Law School Project. And, you know, originally no one really knew about this until about midway through the first year. And then at some point people found out. And, and you know, originally at first they thought, oh, this is a, one big joke. 
And I thought, you know, this is a really expensive joke because, you know, it's right? That, it's that a shame. really expensive. So, what did they, when people realized this was part of an art project, what did they think? Well, they were wondering why, you know, because everybody there is either because their family, you know, there's a lineage, a quote unquote legacy, as we call it. Uh, others were looking to, you know, move on to something where they could make more money. And here comes this guy who's like, look, I'm more interested in like, exploring or anthropologically what it means to go to law school like that training and and i was the only one with long hair you know like rock shirts and they were like this guy's just out of place um but you know the interesting thing about it was the opposite was that how much i became more like the institution rather than wow than able to resist it it was really weird kind of freaky really yeah so did you find like all of a sudden you sort of walked in and you were sort of like you were being turned into something? Yeah, you know, it's like that Nietzschean quote about you stare into the abyss and the abyss stares back into you, right? Because all of a sudden I'm 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 already kind of type A, but then I became really <laughs> type A. And then it was about grades and getting job interviews and like, you know, I was I only have 35 job interviews and you know, my friend has 36. And I was like, wait, I was never like that. Yeah. And so what was the art law field then when you started? What was it like? You know, I didn't know there was a such a thing as art law. Right. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't. And I came to know this place called Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts when I was like my second, third year in law school. Someone said, hey, you should do an internship there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is that? And, you know, when I had lived in New York since 1997, so I was already aware of New York organizations and never heard of that place. Wow. And I think this goes a lot to the education of artists, at least in this country, where there's no acknowledgement or indexing of the law and the legal right. issues you're going to face. Right. And so now, is it the reason for the art law just the fact that the field has so much more money? Is that why there's so much more art law now? I think there's. that's absolutely one of the top two or three reasons. I think the other thing is the internet. Right. You know, if I think back to undergrad, even my grad school days at CalArts, if I wanted to know something, I had to go to a library, right? This building right, right. that has all these things called books. Yeah. And then you heard of it. Right? It's like if you look at pictures, you'll see one. Google it. And, and you'd have to go to a librarian and say, excuse me, can you tell me where I can find information on copyright? Right. right? And then you right. kind of like, right, 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 it, right. it's burdensome. Now you wake up in the morning and you, you're having coffee or green tea like we're having yeah. here. And you Google what is a copyright and boom. That's right. And... You know, mixed with what you were saying about the market, people are saying, hey, there's there's money in this at all levels. You know, whether you are teaching art law or whether you become an art lawyer or, or uh, an advisor. Yeah. A writer. Right? No, about I know. You know, there's one thing talking about art law. I mean, talking about the Internet, you know, occasionally we'll get notices from photographers who accuse us of using their image mm -hmm. and they demand payment, mm -hmm. you know, and there's like some firm in... Colorado or something that specializes in that. <laughs> Trolls. Trolls, right. Because, you know, it's funny. In one specific case about three or four weeks ago, it wasn't even their photo. But mm. because it was of the same subject matter, they just assumed and they tried to shake us down, essentially, until one of us <laughs> called them and was like, dude, it's not even your photo. Do you know? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it's like somebody obviously went on the Internet and just said, any photo that looks like this, I'm going to send a notice to. Right, right. You know? Well, and that's because of the yeah, Internet, right? right. You know, if this was print... 
20 years ago, yeah. would they have known that you had used that image? Probably right. not. Probably not. Probably not. Nope. Then it would have been harder to get to, though, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so now, what are some of the biggest like changes? Because, you know, appropriation obviously seems to be one of the main ways that the well, at least law, art law came into the quote-unquote public consciousness mm -hmm. and the mainstream consciousness. A lot of those sort of evolved. So now... Tell me a little bit about that. Was that a topic that interested you specifically? Was it the one that's probably has the most well-trodden like legal history? I mean, what? How would you describe it? Right. Well, you know, let me start by saying that in law school I became very interested and fascinating, and the class that I got the worst grade in became the topic that I love the most, <laughs> ironically, which is property. Got it. And through that, I started studying tangible and intangible property, as we call it in legalese. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Everything from real estate, you know, uh, uh, personal belongings to in intangible, which becomes intellectual property, right. copyrights, rights right. of publicity, which are the main players in, in art law. So that's how I became interested in it. And then, you know, um, I think because of the ubiquity of appropriation now mm. that, you know, I have friends who are painters, die diehard painters. And they would never, if they needed red, the color red, they would never just squeeze red out of a tube, right? They right. have to mix it. Right. Right. It would, and I always think about that in, as an analogy to appropriation art where now, you know, appropriating has become like painting out of the tube. You know, people just, anyone can do it. And unfortunately, nice way of looking at it. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately what's happened is, again, art schools, I think, don't really teach the history of appropriation and, mm. and it's global, cultural, historical implications, and right. then much less so the legal implications about it now. Right. Um, and if anything, so people get surprised when they get a cease and desist because they get letter because they say, well, you know, but Shari Levine did it and, 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 and Cindy Sherman and the whole Pictures Generation did it and Warhol did it. Why can't I do it? Right. Because you don't live in the 1960s. That's why, you know, right. we're not in the 1970s. So um, do you want to explain that a little for people? Because I think I get it. We've had this conversation before. It's like, but I think people don't understand what's changed. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm doing a seminar later tonight on, on property. And I, and I always say, look, I can give you the history of the world mm -hmm. in one minute. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the agricultural stage, the right. industrial stage, and then what I call the knowledge stage. Right. right. And the first two are tangible. Right. Uh, right. Uh, whether it's potatoes or, or petroleum. When you get to knowledge based, it's so intangible that um, there's any one of us can produce and own intellectual property. Right. right. Whereas if we wanted to own land in Manhattan, mm -hmm. uh, maybe I definitely couldn't own <laughs> land in Manhattan, but some people could. Um, but so that's the major difference. Right. right. And I think art artistically what happens if you look at the turn into the 20th century, artists are starting to realize and notice how much of the industrial uh, stage is really impacting not only their lives, but their own production, mm. right? So by the time you get to, you know, Dada, uh, certainly Rauschenberg and Johns and the Western canon, and definitely pop art, you know, artists almost have an intent. There's a mm. focus on, uh, you know, why are these, how are these products, images, logos, brands, advertising where did is it coming from and why right. is it so ubiquitous why is it everywhere right right i mean you look at the campbell brillo uh warhol was onto something whether you like him or not as an artist i think he understood that that these things kind of popped out of nowhere right and so by the time you get to the pictures generation 
I think mixed with the post-structural, post-modern turn of the late 60s, you know, you get the whole death of the author. Right. And unfortunately, I think art schools haven't left in 1968. You know, you, you, you will still read Bards. You'll still read right. Derrida and it's like new. totally and a big change from that era is of course a lot of those images that were being appropriated were being appropriated often from corporations yes and that's actually one of the you know to go back to your original question what has changed is you know when i got into this uh and even studying it if you look at art law cases Mm -hmm. it's mostly corporation versus corporation corporation versus artist right but now what you're having is artist versus artist an artist versus everyday person yes Yes. Which, you know, that everyday person, I I don't really think of it that way because what differentiates an artist from an everyday person? Well, I think the Richard Prince Instagram is the one where I think I would point out as sort of where that line Mm -hmm. starts uh, being blurred in a very clear way. Right? You mean from the, the subject being appropriated or from the, the person who took the photo? Took the photo. Uh-huh. Took the photo or even sometimes the subject. I mean, right. in one case, there was we, we had published an essay about an artist whose artwork as part of the image was appropriated. Mm-hmm. And he wrote about that sort of feeling as an artist being appropriated by this other much more famous artist. Oh, interesting. But in the case of, uh, in case of like just some everyday person, I mean, maybe they're an influencer, or, you know, one of these yeah, sort of terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and what do you think of the whole rumors about the fact that Richard Prince pays for some of those photos? You know, I I, I can say some things in general and some because I'm involved in some of these oh, okay. disputes. So gotcha. I'm going to be a little uh, a little bit more obtuse. Okay. Uh, but let me start by saying that one of the things you're highlighting is something I'm very interested in intellectually. And that's mm-hmm. the shift now from artist as an individual to artist as a for-profit corporation. Got it. So, you know, um, I used to only represent visual art. I used to say I only represent artists. I don't Mm -hmm. represent galleries or museums or estates. But then the more and more I thought about it, I thought, well, what's the difference? Because once artists start to operate, uh, let's say like a mom and pop shop, like a coffee Mm -hmm. shop, but then they turn into Starbucks, right? Then what is the difference? You know, why am I only saying, do I still believe in this romantic notion of a starving you, you know, romantic um, artists who's struggling against society. You know, I don't see very many of those, especially around in New York City. But so once I got through over that, well, this goes I, back to your 1968, where that sort of that that image of the hero is still kind of there. It's still bit. there. Yeah, we want to yeah. believe in that, yeah. but at the same time, I want to get licensing. I want to get my right. paid for my right. my content, right? And I get it. You know, time. You know, history has changed, but but at the same time, I think that's part of the problem is that is that we now have to see the artist as this mini corporation that at some point becomes like a mega for-profit. And the reason I say that is because what we're seeing is just the way that a, a coffee shop like Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, or Dunkin', I guess now, um, you know, has to license content, right? has to pay for content. Yep. Then you kind of start wondering, why don't artists have to do that? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Especially when they're reproducing it, right? Yeah, right? I mean, because we have the means to do that. Right. You can kind of find out who owns the original image, who produced it, who who authored it, you know, if we can still use that word. So why not reach out to that person? And But I, I also want to, you know, be fair and say this is why in the Copyright Act there is such a thing as fair use. Right. And I think, unfortunately what some sectors of the art law field have done is said everything is fair use once everything becomes fair use you get back to where the courts are going to say are going to start chipping back into it and say no no 
because otherwise you don't have copyright. Right, right, right. And so now what are some of the biggest misconceptions about this field you find? You know, I, I, I kid you not, if I, the cliche of if I had a dollar for every email I get from some law student or some undergrad student saying, I want to do art law, what should I do? I, I would have paid off my law school student loans really? years ago. Wow. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that we were kind of talking about this earlier that I think that people think that art law is very sexy, that right. you're somehow going to be hanging out with mega galleries and drinking wine and and maybe some art lawyers do that, you know, but it sounds but, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I, I'd rather after be having done it a few times. <laughs> yeah, it's not that glamorous. It's not, it's not that glamorous. But, uh, but I, but so you know, I, I think that someone has to do the work, and and at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to contracts. It mm-hmm. comes down to to trust and estates. It comes down to intellectual property. It comes down. To, someone has to yeah, lift yeah. the heavy boxes. Sure, and that's going to be you, the art lawyer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so now, what are some of the things about contractual disputes that are like coming up in the field now that people should know about? Because of course, there's like there's been at least half a century of you know well documented information about this. Now, what don't people know, and what should they know, or how would you describe it in general for somebody? Wow, that's a great question. You know, um, it it occurs to it occurred to me last week because we just had a seminar on the second seminar on contracts and mm-hmm. how many visual artists, even with MFAs or postgrads mm-hmm. or residencies, are not aware of the role contracts played in art since the late sixties, uh, early nineteen seventies in in, in 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 the art world. Um, primarily the use by artists like uh, Daniel Buren, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Asher, Hans Hacke of, of written agreements and Seth Siegelob and Robert Projansky's what we call the artist contract in right. short, right? right. And, and, I, and it's always dismaying when I ask groups of artists and, you know, in a room of 50, 25, maybe one or two people will have heard about it and then no one's read it isn't that amazing and it's it's really shocking do you want to explain the artist contract for those who may not know it sure so uh the artist contract came out in 1971 and it was by an art dealer slash curator um, curator slash slash, again writer slash (laughs) collector i don't know what else he was um and he teams up with with a new york-based art lawyer named robert projansky and they say hey let's draft an agreement where artists will uh, retain certain rights, like resale royalty rights, mm-hmm. 15%. You know, the right to thumbs up or thumbs down where the artwork is going to exhibit. Right. And this is radical, right? Because you kind of have right. to start thinking, why did artists start turning to the law mm-hmm. and specifically legal instruments like contracts to to safeguard what they were fundamentally interested in? I mean, mm-hmm. to me, this is something that I still haven't found an answer to. Right. And, you know, another example is Michael Asher, 1974. He tells his gallery dealer, uh, I believe it was Heiner Friedrich in 1974, you know, the project I just showed in your gallery is not for sale. He comes back to L.A. Gallery dealer calls him up and says, guess what? I just sold your artwork. Right. And so Michael, again, thinks, how can I safeguard? How can I keep people from doing stuff with my art that I don't want them to do? He turns to the contract. And. Uh, you know, so I think one thing that's starting to change contractually is how much artists are starting to become aware of the contract, both as a legal document with force, but also as medium, 
I think some artists are starting mm-hmm. to use contracts right. as a, you know, instead of paint or performance, they're saying, hey, let's use the contract as a right as an art tool. And how effective do you think that's been? Well, put, I, put you your know, critic hat on. Well, you know what? It's, it's hard to tell. And it's hard to okay. tell because if, if you have a good contract, then if someone breaches it, you could just turn around and say, this is clearly a breach of contract. Now we can either settle this or we can go to litigation. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're a smart defendant, you would probably want to settle right. if it's a clear breach. So we wouldn't necessarily hear about them. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. So now... But this also brings up the issue of now, doesn't this just, again, benefit really affluent people, including affluent artists? I mean, if we're getting to the point where we're getting to contract law and we're and we're sort of duking it out in courts, I mean, most of us can't do that. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, no. So, so what, what's what's going on here, in your opinion? Well, I, you know, it's it's what everyone it's the um, elephant in the room, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and it's what I call the pet rock syndrome which is uh you know art i don't call it the art world anymore right i don't even call it the art market i call it the art industry right right so that's that's nicely put you know hollywood has its thing and i think new york has its thing and right and i think we want to believe that it quote unquote critique something art right (laughs) that it unveils well some of it does (laughs) (laughs) some of it might do that um I'm, i'm very jaded but um so i i think that once you enter into that art industry, unfortunately, what it does is it says, you know, I, I um, where I live deeper in, in Williamsburg, unless it's, it's East Bushwick or I don't know what it is. <laughs> but um, there's a gentleman that, that sells empanadas on the corner of Grand Street and I think it's Lorimer and or something like that. And, and he he was gone for like a week. So when I saw him again, I said, Hey, well, you know, what happened? You know, you're not here. And he says, well, you know, someone turned me into the city and said that I didn't have a permit. He's like, I don't, you're kidding. No. And he said, you know, um, he's like, I can't afford that. And now he's like, they, they, he has all of these citations that he has to pay. He has to get that permit and he can barely afford to put his card away in the local storage uh, shed. And I thought that's kind of what's happening in the art world is that that's right. if you're going to start a business, you have to have the means to start a business. And and being an artist in a studio is no different. So it's not that he did. Wow. He, yep. he didn't say, right, I, I, yeah, I yeah, want to yeah. become a, yeah. a mega McDonald's. It's the law coming to him and saying or the culture, the society coming mm. in and saying, oh, you have to abide by the rules. Right. It's called gentrification. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So now let's talk about a little bit of these resale royalties. How do you fall on that? For those who may not know, resale royalties is like the contract you mentioned, where the idea that after when something is sold at auction or a secondary market, the artist would get a percentage. Now, some people say that will kill the auction industry. Some people say, no, that's you know just the way it should be and everyone should benefit from that. Where do you come down on that? And what have you actually seen it? Like, because you see it in practice, you know, you've seen people sort of talk about these and how it actually works in the law. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Yeah, that's a really tough question. <laughs> it's a good one, though. Um, you know, there is um, a, a pending bill at the federal level in the U.S. Mm-hmm. to make uh, uh, federal legislation about resale royalties or, or on resale royalties. And recently in California, the Court of Appeals there said, you know, you know, this is um, uh, resale royalties are unconstitutional because it's preempted by the Copyright Act. Right. And so, okay, great. I don't know 
I think this is where my art part comes in or artist part comes in. And I don't know that I want artists being accepting more and more government regulation mm-hmm. because with a, a reaching out with a government hand right. or giving something, there's going to be something in re- that you have to Absolutely. give up in return. Right. And so I'm much more of a proponent of, in, of dealing with those resale rights if an artist wants them on an individual basis. So like a contractual a basis? contractual basis. Gotcha. Right. Now, we go back to what you were saying. Well, you know, can Jane Doe leverage her, you know, first painting right out right. of her MFA the way that uh, a blue chip artist can? And no. But I think this is where we have to learn from the music industry the film industry and say we have to start somewhere you, know, right. you can't wait till you're a blue chip artist to leverage that right right and and so now how about in terms of um artists estates and legacies mm-hmm. because you know this has become a huge issue i mean we're talking about some huge foundations are being formed it partly because the art market is has been on fire for decades you know, the prices are so much higher. These sort of artists are are like getting into the game where they're sort of creating their own museums, which is not new, but mm-hmm. I think the foundations are new. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's another thing that's changed. You know, I think the artist estates, artist legacies is, a, for the most part, a recent animal, maybe mm-hmm. three at the max, five years. Yeah. And all, all of a sudden, right, every morning you wake up and someone's emailing you saying, hey, we now represent the estate of... X, Y, Z. And you're like, wow, I didn't even know that person existed. But what, what this is true. I, and some of them are foundations that are give significant grants. And you're like, I have no idea who that is. Who that is. Yeah. Right. It's a and, and but there's also, you know, I, I, I'm going to sort of tie this to something personal. My my significant other, uh, you know, I, she has now accepted that I live in the 80s. I'm like, I'm like a day away from getting a mullet. <laughs> <laughs> But, but so I say that jokingly, <laughs> I don't know about the mullet, but I do say it jokingly because I think what's happening in the market is you'd look good in a mullet. Yeah, I think I would. Right. I, I so kind of have one right now. <laughs> a little bit. Um, the, you know, if you look at when was the last quote unquote art movement, right. And, and I think what the market is seeing is that artists who have or have a market are slowly dying off. So where, where you kind of have to go back decades and say, who did we miss? Who someday is going to be found. Mm-hmm. Some historian is going to write about them, right? Or some, some mm-hmm. writer is going to write about them. And we want to lock them in. I, I kind of think that it's working that way. Mm. Well, I mean, definitely if you're a collector, you're looking for like, who can I collect, right? You know, that's part of it too. And it's, you know, someone explained to me that, you know, part of the reason a lot of these quote unquote secondary abstract expressionists are coming up is because it's impossible to create a, a great collection of quote unquote first tier abstract expressionists really you know and it's like yeah. i've heard somebody tell me that i mean i guess that kind of makes sense you know somebody also said that's why people don't some of these sort of hot billionaires don't collect old masters because you can't really amass a major collection anymore you can't no it's, it's gone if you're paying half a billion dollars for a quote-unquote leonardo you know <laughs> that's it that's, that's your it. collection there you are that's there's your, your collection. collection you better <laughs> like that painting <laughs> <laughs> right but you know i think that this goes back to maybe a little bit of the uh destabilizing of the western canon where where interestingly and ironically by saying look there's some women 
or minority mm-hmm. artists that were forgotten, that were written out, they're all of a sudden have been found. Well, they're not just going to be found by art historians and critics. No. They're going to be found by the auction houses and, right. and dealers and galleries. That's right. Absolutely. So now let's talk about some specific cases, because I think, you know, this will kind of bring out some of the issues we're talking about in different ways. So now, first of all, should we start with the Prince Instagram appropriation? What do you think that's teaching us about the art world today? Well, um, I know you're, you've been involved in some of those cases, so you probably can't legally talk about it, but I'm talking more generally because I think it did at least represent a little bit of a shift in the way people are thinking. And I think it's kind of interesting that it came at a time right before, right about the time social media started getting the negative publicity, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like it's not, it wasn't all like, you know, daisies and, and rainbows, right. like people thought it was. Now it's sort of like, oh, he's kind of like a lurker or like some sort of weird old dude stealing young women's photos. I don't know. I mean, it's it's different. Well, you know, that's another thing in the last 10 years. When I started giving uh, public lectures on copyright and appropriation mm-hmm. and so forth, um, the room Unanimous, you know, it was like ninety percent of the people in the room, mostly artists, mm-hmm. arts professionals, mm-hmm. were were uh, what I would call pro uh, lead information flow. Yes, you know, let all appropriation is good. Yep, right. It's it's um uh, it's what's needed to critique the man. Mm-hmm. And I would hear things like that now, and this has been like the last three years, last five years. It's changed. Yeah. It's, it's totally. overwhelmingly artists saying no. I don't want people just taking my stuff. And that's another interesting trajectory. And I don't think it's just money. No, I don't think it's a question it's of money. I think the cultural appropriation movement that I call had a lot to do with that. And I think it, there was also, a lot of it has to do with the writing that's been coming out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people lecturing and saying, what happened to intent? Right. What happened to artistic intent? And I think, I think that's a good thing because Again, I go back to art schools. I blame art schools for a lot of what's, what's <laughs> happened recently. And, and one is that no one's really paying attention to what's being taught. Right. You know, people just keep teaching the same syllabus from 2000. And, and so there's not a focus on, on, on is, it, is, is re-photographing something from Facebook, you know, or, or image grabbing really the same that was going on in the late 70s, early 80s, right. Right? in the 60s, in the 1920s? You know, uh, is it the same as as Velasquez's Las Meninas? It's not. You know, and- no. You know, I have to say, I'm I for one am one of those people who changed because I was much more open until I realized that it was starting to be instrumentalized by corporations. Yeah, for different ways, mm-hmm. right? They're like all of a sudden it was never their responsibility. So you know, people, someone could take a personal image of you even. <clears throat> start reposting it, memifying it, whatever, mm-hmm. but somehow it was nobody's responsibility, right? right? Like right. somehow, except for the fact that you shared it, sometimes even privately, right? you know? And then, you know, it's like, I'm not so, I have to say I'm one of those cynics because it's like, I don't think free, free for all over image rights is really helping anything anymore. But I don't think you're being a cynic because I, I get accused of being that and, and I think, no, I think the cynic is the person who still believes that we walk into an art gallery, I don't, uh, and look at, a, at someone who appropriates content and say, oh my, you know, I just thought of, think, think differently of Instagram or, or, or Facebook. <laughs> my life has been completely reinvigorated. You'd have to be a pretty sad person. You'd have to right. be pretty sad or, or idiotic because- <laughs> Or in a bubble, which or might in a be- bubble. Which might be some of those people. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Is- but you know, this, you know, and maybe you're gonna bring this up, but this reminds me of the, I think it was this summer, the NEA, 
uh, sorry, yes. the NRA, uh, National Rifle right. Association. And Anish Kapoor. Anish I was going to bring that up. Yes. So now that was an interesting case. For those who don't know, in this case, it was the NRA was doing an anti um, gun control ad. And there was a shot from Chicago that showed Anish Kapoor's The Bean, the, fa the famous public artwork. Um, and Anish Kapoor sued the NRA mm -hmm. for the use of the image. Yeah, I believe they're still in... in uh that case is still ongoing. Really? Yeah. yeah. Does he have a case? And uh, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, so. I don't understand. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you make a public artwork that literally becomes a symbol of the city, and then you want to tell people how to use it? Well, so so here we have many ironies. One yeah. is that, again, uh, visual artists in general want the right to appropriate uh, as they see fit, and yet other entities or other individuals cannot. Right. Right. And so what, why is there that distinction? Right. Because if I'm the NRA, I think, well, what keeps us from saying we're an artist? That's actually what I keep thinking corporations are going to start doing. Yeah. If they're smart, <laughs> you know? they will. They will. Sure. Then and we've like, laid it out. It? We've laid out that foundation. Hey, I, I have a mine in Peru and everyone, this is an art project. Yeah. And they're <laughs> it's a performance art project, right? I, I pay I'm them. waiting. I'm waiting uh, for it. They're interns. That's right. Um, <laughs> they're all getting credit. They're all getting credit. Uh, look, you can see them carrying bricks on their backs. Uh, <laughs> petroleum. Uh, right. I mean, but but no, you're right. And, and I know. I, think, I mean, and, it's and, we're going into like fantastical, but it's not that far. It's not. And, it's and, not. And I'm. We're saying in here now today. What is it? October fifteenth, two thousand eighteen. It's a matter of time. Right. Someone's going to before that. a corporation yeah. says That's we right. are an artist. Why not? That's right. Why can't they? They have religious rights. That's right. They have freedom of expression rights. They're people. And yeah, and they're already under they the Copyright personhood. Act. They're 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 authors. Yep. So why not just say, hey, what's the next step? We're an artist. You know what? I actually think that's going to happen. So I think you're absolutely right. So now let's talk um, about some other more, I think, more difficult cases, particularly the case with the Sam Durant piece at the Walker Art Center. Mm -hmm. I think that was such a complicated issue. I, I mean, I think nobody feel, I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people feel like it's been resolved in a, in a, in a satisfactory way, but there's certainly a lot of people who are not hmm. feeling mm -hmm. that way. <laughs> because I think a lot of people felt like Sam Durant was forced to do what he did. Um, or at least that's what some people have said. To and me. how would he be? That's interesting. It, it, how is he being forced? Like, how, how, what is that? What does that mean? Well, I had somebody tell me saying, oh, well, you know, he had no choice. What was he going to do? And I'll be like, wait a minute. But he could have said, no, the piece He could have done up. a lot of things. Yeah. It's like, I mean, that takes away his agency, right? Right. Sure. Well, the man is agency. He created right. it. Right. He put it in the world. What are your thoughts on the piece and what, how it was resolved? I think the piece should have stayed up. Hmm. And um, I think, I, you know, along with me blaming the MFA programs, I also blame the curatorial programs. I don't right. think they're teaching anything. I mean, I don't know what they're teaching because, you know, I've, I've, again, if we go by anecdotes, I hear artists whose work is exhibited and they say, you know, the curator never even saw the entire video. The curator didn't, doesn't really understand the work, right. but they're, they're writing about it. They're right. hanging it on the wall. Right. And I, so my point being that I don't think curators really understand that some works now, especially given this political moment we live in, are going to bring in that kind of controversy. And if they do, they yeah. don't prepare for it. So what, why do you think it should have stayed? Um, because I, I do believe that the role of the artist... Well, let me say this first. I think Sam, having studied at CalArts, mm -hmm. teaching at CalArts, understands the notion of criticality. Right. He understands the notion of intent. Mm -hmm. And for him to then say, oops, I forgot that I was putting this work 
that includes Native American history, one of the most grotesque moments of Native American history in Native American land, I forgot or I didn't know is either ignorance right. or he did know, but he pretended he didn't. Right. Right. And so I, I kind of wish that he had said, you know what? I kind of wish he had been better prepared mm-hmm. and then could have argued as to why the piece should stay up. Right. And then that's his statement. Then it's up to the curator and the walker to say, well, you know, even though you still wanted to be up, we're going to remove it. You don't think the protests by the local Dakota, Lakota groups and the different groups sort of like thought this is a really inappropriate thing? Because, I mean, it was a playground. Let's not forget. This sure. was a park and a playground. Sure. It wasn't like it was in the walls of the museum. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I sort of fall on the, well... I actually think it kind of makes it strangely more interesting. And it kind of actually fits into Sam's body of work, which is these weird sort of spots in our culture. That it stayed up? Oh, sorry. No, that, that, they, that, it, was, that it was resolved. That it was I mean, resolved. it was resolved The way, way it was resolved. The way it was resolved. Mm-hmm. That's per, my personal take. Interesting. But, I mean, you think it should, they, so now in this case, let's say hypothetically he didn't know. And he d- it didn't really have that forethought because it was commissioned for Documenta, Documenta, mm-hmm. and it was up in Germany. And um, and then it came literally, I mean, clearly the Walker bought it because of its local connection mm-hmm. or or thought that it was probably a good idea mm. <laughs> at the time. You or think? At least, I think? I think, I mean, I come on, to not see a Minnesota connection in that work, if you were someone yeah. buying the work... You, I think you it was give pretty institutions clear. much more latitude than I do. Really? You yeah. don't think they thought they... They, it occurred to them that this is a local tragedy. But wouldn't the next step say, look, th- does this get represented as a tragedy or as a playground? Well, see, I think this might be where the where sometimes it breaks down. You're bringing up is I think sometimes people feeling like they're helping a situation without asking the people they're helping. <laughs> right, right, right. Of <laughs> you know, course. this might be a case of that. Right, think, sure. Yeah. But you know, I, 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 you keep asking me why do I think? I also think that. As artists, one has to be very careful, going back to to intervention Mm -hmm. and government intervention. Once artists are asking for permission, then what really is the role of the art? Then you're really sedimenting my belief that artists are are now corporations. Yeah, but no one's asking permission. I mean, this is a public artwork. You know, this is different. I mean, it's it's like nobody asked permission for the documentary in the same way. Or like if it was in a a gallery, I think it would have been Well, public in what way? Because it's publicly, it's visible. It's it's a public artwork, yes. It's public artwork. But it was on Walker. It was on Walker property right by the highway. You really can't avoid it. Right. I don't know. You know, you've probably been to Minnesota. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's sort of like, it's a pretty well, prominent spot. Sure. But so what? Okay. You don't think? No, no. I I, I see what you're saying. I, I, I don't put the blame. I think what's interesting about this is that it's not in the utterance. I put the blame in the artist not having acknowledged mm-hmm. that what he was about to say got it was going to be controversial got it like to still have that amount of i don't want to call it privilege but that amount of of ignorance right willful it just says that anything i do now is automatically blessed with being got it accepted into the art cat right i guess i compare it to like you know anti-advertising activists who like differentiate between public billboards versus Mm -hmm. like ads on tv or in a magazine or something one being something you're forced to look at rather than something that isn't anyway so that's how i was thinking interesting so now let's talk about the whitney biennial Mm -hmm. you know the controversy last year of course with the dana Mm -hmm. schutz the um, you know the who you who said she used an image right right the photograph the famous photograph um, 
for the image of uh, you know of the uh, murder of mm-hmm. uh, of Emmett Till. Emmett Till. Right. Right. Um, yeah. You know. Again, I. I I kind of wish two things on that one. I also think that work should have, you know, when it did stay up. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that scared me the most was the call by artists now to destroy right. art also. I, I, you know, because again, once the art industry starts to expand to the extent that it says we are no different than uh, how Monsanto operates or, or how mm-hmm. Nike operates, then there are benefits to that, but there are a lot of, of negative right. consequences to that right. as well, right? Um, and I think, unfortunately, I, I, I kind of wish that Dana Schutz had said either, look, when I look at that image, I just think abstraction, and that's what I was trying to do. You know, just blunt, mm-hmm. flat out, say this mm-hmm. is what artists do all the time, and then, that's, yep. you know, whether we like it or not, fine. Right. Or on the other hand, to say, you know what? I screwed up, kind of like the Durant. Yep. I didn't really pay attention. You know, I just thought this was just another postcard. Right. You know, this is just another image from the, your, your local flea market magazine and and say, I, I should have thought better about it. So if you notice, I think with both Duran and, and Schutz, what I'm talking about is that I, artists, I, I wonder if artists are still, are, what do they do in their studios? Like, do they, do they, do they acknowledge the material and the content that they're working with? Right. So now in that case, that came up something when you were saying that it, it occurred to me. What if, you know, in that case, like, why don't artists just come out and say, look, I made a mistake? Do you think there's an actual, is it our culture? Like, people just don't want to admit that? Like, what, you you know, in her case, she could have easily, and maybe it would have made it worse. I don't know. But she could have easily said, you know what? I've just seen this differently now. That's Mm -hmm. not how I approach this. And I understand other people are seeing it this way. Let's talk about this. I mean, what, do you think, is, is it partly because of legal? I'm wondering, like, you know, because, you know. Yeah, well, it could be in some situations. This one, I don't really see a legal issue, right? Because, uh, you know, admitting faults sometimes yeah, in legal yeah, issues. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right, yeah. right. No, you know what it is. And I think more recently, the, the Supreme Court nomination hearings, the Kavanaugh. I missed that. What happened? Is, <laughs> Just like, kidding. Who's that again? <laughs> <laughs> you, what, you mean we have a Supreme Court? <laughs> um, no, you know what's funny about that is that in a weird way it's because there's no endpoint ultimately the parties that wanted that painting burned or destroyed even then they wouldn't i would have asked them what will make you happy right and i don't think they would have been able to give me an answer right and i think and the reason i kind of related to the kavanaugh hearings because i think that's kind of how the the Republicans or the conservatives that were voting for Kavanaugh saw the situation. They're like, look, there's no end point. If we don't vote, mm-hmm. this is never going to go away. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I wonder about that. Like, you know, wh- what that mindset is that we can't just sort of be, hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Yeah. You know, that's not good enough. Yeah. That's is that not it? Good enough. No, we don't live in that culture, you know, which is why in a weird way, I would I would rather have someone say, yeah, I did it. And. I'll take the beating. I mean, that's, but you know what? This goes back to appropriation. Mm -hmm. This goes back to a lot of appropriation. What I'm also seeing from appropriators is that they do it. You know, they do poke someone and they start this bar fight. And then when that other party turns around and says, okay, let's go. It's like, oh, I was just kidding. Right. It's a joke. 
mm-hmm. you know and i and i hate to you know make it about you know physical confrontation or violence but but i it's about it, conflict it's about That's, conflict yeah it's about our culture and, and how we deal with conflict you're starting yeah. you're starting a conflict and I, this is just to tie in again, it's sort of, you know, that's why it's like sometimes the legal is sort of just how rich people fight. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, who was it? Was it uh, uh, Paul Rand who, and I think he, he articulates something that is in on many of our minds is that it's, we're not that far away from some kind of violent act to a government official in this country. I don't think we no. are. No, no, no. Because... No the last resort that you the one has is violence right yeah absolutely sadly it's becoming too common so now how about in terms of some other issues is there any issues that you want to discuss that's sort of burning on you you've been hearing about a lot um that you think you and your friends are are sort of discussing that's like this is on the horizon this is this is going to become a big issue anything wow you know i i think we kind of you know um well I don't know if it's for better or worse, but I think the question of one, if one really believes in what one does as an artist Mm -hmm. and says, this is who I am, this is who I'll be, you know, 50 years from now, is the question of legacy and and one's work product. Mm -hmm. And really starting to say and start to detail out what is your artwork, what are your archives, what what, what is not, you know, Mm -hmm. what is just a mug that I use every morning. And and it's not just for the market value, but I think I still believe in history and in art history. And I think that if, if you want to so romantic, I know, man, like I tell you. <laughs> so I'm going back to the mullet and, because if you think about how will history remember your role in this thing that we do called art 50, 70, 100 years from now, I think you have to kind of have some control over it now hmm. because otherwise someone else will do that. And, That's right. And, and we're you. laying that groundwork to happen. Absolutely. So one final thing, Sergio, you know, the art world has been obsessed for the last couple of weeks and not just the art world beyond with the Banksy stunt at the auction. Now, you know, I have to say part of me thinks like, you know, it's, I mean, it was cute. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was great. You know, it's sort of like, it was, it was unexpected. You know, it was kind of ridiculous. It's sort of, you know, all that sort of stuff. I do think that people talking about it often tell you more about their attitudes towards art and the market hmm. rather than I anything else. I saw your else. tweet yeah. today about that. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, I just think it's, I think especially when it comes to anything quote unquote graffiti or street art related, there's definitely a class issue that plays in huh. between people's attitude towards that kind of art because it's sort of seen as populist. And even though Banksy's done some interesting things sure. like in the West Bank and other places sure. where, you know, people don't tread, right. you know, in terms of like politics. Right. And he's really sort of engaged in, in a real way you know for better or for worse so i'm going to say that now the question i think i've been having with friends now what if the collector didn't want the work now is there a legal framework for that well if there isn't we'll create one (laughs) we mean (laughs) lawyers will (laughs) well you know what i would have argued is like that's not what i bid on that's not you know i i you you were selling me your red 1967 porsche and what you delivered was was a crumbled Chamberlain. I mean, right. maybe I would take the Chamberlain instead. But, <laughs> yeah, I was about but to assuming say Chamberlain, the Chamberlain, Chamberlain wasn't Chamberlain. Great. Yeah. <laughs> assuming Chamberlain wasn't Chamberlain, right? I didn't get my 1967 red Porsche. I, I got a pile of junk. And, and I think the purchaser would have had a legitimate argument. Absolutely. Now, to go back to everything we've discussed, mm-hmm. This is the weird thing. I mean, the other analogy to this is the, I think it was Wade Guyton who did this once, I think on Twitter, right? Where he, 
uh, right before auction kind of posted an image of, of 20 prints that he just hit print on mm-hmm. or something to that effect because he wanted to tank the auction of yeah. his piece. And in fact, what it did was increase the value, right? And now so, it's part of a series. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know what it is now, right? Well, but, this is but this is the thing. Like all these tricks, all these legal things, I, it, I just don't think they reduce value. Like Richard Prince and the Ivanka image. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry, that didn't that make it more valuable? Of course. But like, this is where like people go insane, right? right? In this field. Well, this is, you know, because we have this conversations with my friends also is that if, when there's a dispute, let's say for example, over appropriation, mm-hmm. a lot of times that artwork, when it's in limbo, when it's unclear whether it's fair use or not, is worth more. Right. Right. So essentially Richard Prince created more value for that Ivanka image. Yes. Right. And and I think even though the, he pretends it's the with opposite. a Banksy, right? You yeah. now have a work it wasn't just the little girl with a balloon. Right. It's the work that everyone I mean, I had people who don't know anything about That's art right. emailing me, That's texting right. me and saying, Oh my God, did you see this? I'm like, No. I live in a <laughs> under a rock. <laughs> But, you know, to, once your mom, my mother, right, starts texting me this Your stuff, mom texted my you My mom, she's like, oh, I just saw about this guy named Did Binksy. She like and it? I'm like, it's Banksy. Did she like it? Uh, I don't know what she thought, you know. She's like, well, I, she, she would be mad if the, you know, the, the fake Renoir over her kitchen table would be shredded. <laughs> <laughs> so... But so I don't think she would have wanted the shredded version. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. It wouldn't look good. <laughs> It'd be harder to clean, that's for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't but, want it either. But no, that's just, where we are, you yeah. know? It's it's that But that's what I mean. That's where that you could see the cynical part of humanity come out where you're like, you know what? You could say whatever you want, even in the contract. I see. That doesn't actually it's not going to really have a really lasting impact. And you you have a legitimate argument and you know why because maybe what we're discussing is that art really now is produced defined by the purchaser, not by the maker. That's interesting. So we're going to have to have you back to discuss that <laughs> and a lot more, Sergio, because you know how much we love your opinions um, here. Well, at thank you for having me. Allergic. So definitely. So thanks, Sergio. A special thanks to Brooklyn-based musician Sun Sun for providing the music to this episode. And you can check out his website, sunsun.band. That's S-U-N-S-O-N dot B-A-N-D. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Baby, I'm so